It is great to be here. This is a fairly new experience for me, preaching back to back. And um, I was saying that one of the biggest dangers, because I've just preached the sermon, it, I, I'm, imagine the preacher getting bored at his own sermon, because he's, pre- he's already preached it just a little while ago, but hopefully I'll still be excited about Jesus, imagine. Um, we are in Mark chapter 4. Um, please turn there if you can in your Bibles to Mark 4. This is very, this is remarkably, this is identical lectern that we use in the town hall in Ballyclare. It was just meant to be, meant to be, wasn't it? Yes. Um, Mark 4, 35 to 41. It's the last little section of this chapter. And as you will see, it's a fairly well-known incident in the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark 4. Let me pray for us before I read and jump in. And then we will dig into this text together. Father, it is our pleasure to gather together as your people. And as our faces differ and contexts differ, and in many cases our accents differ, we thank you for the one glorious hope that unites us, and that is the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior whose gospel truly does transform and unite and brings us together. And as we would consider a passage in your word that we might be prone to read with a little bit of subconscious disdain because familiarity can sometimes breed contempt. We think we we know this and we probably do largely know it. We pray that there would be something fresh in it for us this morning and that the Lord Jesus Christ would walk off the pages of scripture into our very lives and that you would be pleased to do a a miraculous work of grace and hearts. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, this is the, the 12, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, on the 18th of March, 1990, the largest art robbery in U.S. history took place. Thirteen works of art totaling over $500 million of Artwork was stolen from a museum in Boston. One of the prized pieces of art that were stolen that day, never been recovered since, was Rembrandt's one and only seascape painting entitled The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was Rembrandt's attempt to recapture the events of this passage in Mark, but Rembrandt had a very interesting and creative inclusion. Not to patronize anyone, but Jesus plus the 12 disciples equals 13. But in Rembrandt's painting, there's 14 men in the boat. 
And I've got a, a little photograph here. It might not be that, oh, there's too much, there's too much light in the face. <laughs> Sorry for the three of us. I can maybe make something out of that. But you can Google this at any time. Not now during the sermon. That might be a bit rude. But any time you can Google it. Um, the storm in the Sea of Galilee. And you will see that the, the disciples are doing different things. Some are at the front trying to keep the seal intact as they navigate the elements. Others are arguing with Jesus as they do in the text. One is praying. One is being sick over the side of the boat. I could very much relate to him. But there is one singular individual on this boat. And this singular individual in the painting is looking at you while you're looking at the painting. It's Rembrandt. He painted himself in the story. And I think Rembrandt got it. Because I think that's what the passage is actually calling us to do as disciples of Jesus. We are to paint ourselves, to place ourselves into this boat and allow the narrative to talk to us and to inspect us in the way that it inspected them at the very beginning. And here is the big point that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The storms that we go through in life with Jesus are storms of revelation. When I say storms of revelation, they are revealing by and large two things. They are revealing to us more about ourselves, but they are also showing us more about Jesus, who is more than capable of dealing all the stuff that is within ourselves, or even at times the stuff that is lacking within ourselves. So what I would like to do this morning is to walk through the text as quick as I can, get a bit of a bearing understand the context, see what's going on, and then we're going to end on four points of application to see what this text is actually telling us about these storms of revelation. So let's just walk through the text, get a bit of a picture as to what's going on. Verses 35 and 36. The immediate context is that Jesus has been teaching all day crowds, large crowds. It's been a full day of teaching ministry. And we read now that as the evening draws in, Jesus wants his disciples to get in a boat and go across the sea. Now, immediately what we discover, therefore, is that as storms are difficult enough when they're happening during the day. So immediately, this is going to be heightened by the fact that it's probably dark now by the time they're actually going through these elements. So it's, it's fear upon fear, if you like. It's, it's horror upon horror, as it were, because this is not just a daytime storm. This is a nighttime storm. Um, now, let me just throw out this. If, maybe you're here, and you're not a Christian, and you're in a bit of a journey with faith, and you're dipping in and out, and you're wondering what to make of this Christianity business. And one of the things you are probably wrestling with is the believability of the accounts of Christianity in the Bible. That's whatever, it's a baseline fundamental problem that people will need to try to wrestle with and they need to wrestle with. Now, what you would deem believable or unbelievable will, is, is far more complicated than just a lack of evidence that you might say. Um, sociologists talk about plausibility structures where we have, um, because of our upbringing, our culture, there's various things, there's various grids that you have in your mind that will determine what you think is believable or unbelievable. And we live in a culture that is more often than not about celebrating authenticity over authority. 
So we want people to be themselves. We don't want people to come out with truth claims or authority. And one of the big things you have to wrestle with is that rooted in the gospel accounts is a claim of authority that they are eyewitness testimony. And I'm going to draw your attention now and then in a few moments. There's, there's two what one scholar refers to as irrelevant details in this passage that, that point to the fact that this is not myth. You would not write this account this way if you're just making up a story. And, and one of them appears in verses 35 and 36. It appears in verse 36. Peter, who's the eyewitness testimony behind this count, as Mark writes this, we read that they leave to go to the other side and other boats were with them. It plays no role in the narrative whatsoever. It's an irrelevant detail. Why on earth would Mark, under Peter's eyewitness testimony, need to tell the people that there's other boats? They play no role in the story, but there's other boats. Why mention them? Because Peter has never forgotten this day as an eyewitness testimony. But the text, of course, draws in on one boat, and it's that one boat we're considering. So verses 37 to 39, we read now of a great windstorm, refers to a hurricane. And the Conditions now turn sideways very quickly. Um, the, the area was not uncommon for extreme weather conditions to flare up like this. The, a lot of these men would have been well used to this. But this particular storm is causing real fear. We'll consider a, a potential reason why that may, might be in a few moments. But contrasted with the frightened disciples, Jesus is asleep. Second irrelevant detail, he's not just asleep, he's asleep on the cushion. <laughs> why, do they need, why do you need to tell us that? Because it's an eyewitness testimony. It's an eyewitness testimony. He never forgot this is lodged in Peter's mind. He's asleep on the cushion. And it's more than just the fact that Jesus is tired from teaching all day, and he is that. It's almost as if Jesus has got this under control. It's almost as if Jesus knows what he's doing. And as he sleeps, and as the water breaks into the boat, the disciples are far from convinced that this is a situation that you can afford to sleep in. And they awaken him. And they awaken him. It's more than a question. It's, it's almost like an accusation, isn't it? Don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus stands up, speaks to creation, and it obeys. And, and what we have here is a beautiful, beautiful coming together of what Christians have historically always believed about Jesus as revealed in the Bible. Jesus is truly human, and he's truly divine. He's human because he sleeps in a boat. He's divine because he stands up, he speaks to creation, and it obeys him. In Psalm 107, we read of a group of sailors that go out to sail in the sea, they come against some storms. They cry out to Yahweh, and he calms the wind and the waves. Sound familiar? Jesus is God in the flesh. The, um, so I said this to Alder Road um, this morning. Um, we've been with the um, wider leadership team, the elders in the wider leadership team for the last few days. Wonderful time. But by yesterday afternoon, you're pretty, you're pretty goosed. And so I'm human, believe it or not, truly human. Strange accent, but truly human. So I needed to sleep for an hour. And my wife and I took a little walk around the lake area there and, and, and uh, started to spit, as we would say. Peter Kay, it's spitting. You know. 
and um, we knew what was happening. There was dark clouds arriving, so we went inside for coffee. I slept that afternoon, but when the rain came, came, I did not attempt to speak to the rain to tell it to stop. It just didn't happen, because I'm truly, I'm human, but I'm not divine. Here's Jesus, and he's both. He's both. And he stands, he rebukes the elements, but this is what is interesting about the way he rebukes the elements. Commentators note that he commands the elements to be silent. It means to muzzle. And this word has been used twice already in Mark's gospel, and on both occasions, it's how Jesus spoke to the demons. Not only that, that the tense is in what we could call second-person plural. It says Jesus is not speaking to an inanimate object. It's as if he's speaking to a force behind, personal force behind this. Now, what's also interesting is that when Jesus and his disciples get to the other side in Mark 5, something happens. A legion of demons through a man comes to approach him and tries to discourage Jesus from going on. Could this be a storm trying to prevent the Son of God breaking his kingdom further? And what this shows us is that God is sovereign over the storm. All storms, God is totally and utterly sovereign. That does not necessarily mean that his hand is always the primary direct cause behind the difficulties that come into our lives. And isn't it interesting, in the book of Job, when Satan asked to attack Job and his family, do you remember one of the ways Job lost his family? A whirlwind. Whirlwind. Ripped through the house. And so that's, that's potential. I mean, people will differ, but this, could this be a demonic storm coming against Jesus and the disciples to stop him from expanding his message and his kingdom further? But Jesus calms it. There's then a bit of a ruckus in terms of where's your faith? Where's your faith? And the passage ends. So that's what the passage tells us. But what does the passage mean? So we consider storms of revelation. I want to draw your attention to four things that this passage says to us. Here's the first, I have a funny feeling all four might be up at the one time, at least they were at Alder Road, so that's no problem. We'll just walk through them one at a time. The first one is this. We often doubt Jesus' love for us because we look at the storm and not at his word. Now, I, I need to be really careful here, and I said this in the first, in the last site. What I'm about to say here is I am not in any, this would be so ironic of me to sound like we are judging the disciples, okay? We are disciples, they are disciples, we are exactly like them. When the disciples come to Jesus and ask the question, don't you care? It is because every single one of us who have walked with Jesus for longer than 10 minutes know that life is full of difficulty, and we have asked that question in one form or another, either audibly or internally. If we've never vocalized it, we've thought it. It's always happened. Jesus, I have no job. Don't you care? Jesus, my kids are no longer walking with you. Don't you care? Jesus, my body is riddled with pain. Don't you care? Jesus, I am suffering from anxiety and depression and mental health problems for far too long. Don't you care? Jesus, I feel like I am the only person in this room, even though I'm filled with others, and I don't feel I've got a friend in the world. Don't you care? It's a real question. It's a raw question. And if you've been asking that question, I want you to see something. The Bible validates that question in terms of the fact that it shows us that it's asked a lot. Don't you care, Jesus? 
the storm comes in. And what happens, what we do in those moments is that we view the love of Jesus through the lens of the storm instead of viewing the storm through the lens of the love of Jesus. Because how does the text begin? Let us go across to the other side. Now, that's the will of Jesus. We are going across to the other side. There's no question that's going to happen. Now, granted, Jesus does not tell them what the journey will be like. He doesn't say the crossing will be easy. He doesn't say it will be straightforward. He doesn't say their emotional, their emotional state will always be the way they want it to be. He doesn't say they won't have questions, but this is what Jesus does say. We are going across to the other side. That's the word of Jesus, which means the storm is not a threat to the journey. The storm is part of the journey. The storm is not threatening in the journey because Jesus' word has declared you're going across to the other side. The storm is actually part of the journey. So the question is, are we, in the context of storms, will we rest secure on the word of what Jesus says, or will we look at the difficulty and conclude that because it's difficult, Jesus can't fulfill what he has said? And I want to propose that Jesus always fulfills what he says, and storms are not a threat. Elizabeth Elliot puts it this way, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. They can't understand why Jesus would be sleeping in the storm. Jesus' will and time, said this in the last, you ever find that your timetable clashes with Jesus' timetable quite a bit? Like, what is all that about? He just doesn't do things in the way and the time scale that I want him to do it. But his word remains true. His word remains true. Don't judge the word of Jesus by your preconceived timetable. It will never work. It will never work. But we need to go further because we are, like the disciples in the boat, asking Jesus, questioning Jesus' love for us, right? Don't you care? So here's the question. How does Jesus treat us in the storm? Secondly, Jesus is tender toward us in the storm. Have you ever been rudely awakened from sleep? And what form are you in when you are rudely awakened from sleep? You know, one of you are working night shift. Let's just paint the scenario. Mummy has worked night shift. She gets into the house about 20 to 9 in the morning, and it's Daddy's duty to keep the kids away from the room. Just give me a few hours to catch up a night shift. Daddy's getting the breakfast, gets the kids organized, hopefully maybe take them out to the park, let off a bit of steam. Keep, But, but, but Daddy was too interested to find out the Bournemouth team news, and he was in the Sky Sports app, and there was a ruckus outside the master bedroom at about 10 o'clock as Mummy was going into that sleep that was so sweet drifting, and the noise awakens. How does mommy react when she is awakened from sleep? Jesus is rudely awakened from sleep. And do you notice that he does not rebuke the disciples, he rebukes the storm? He does not start an argument with them. He does not pile on guilt and shame. He does not tell them, why on earth would you question me? Have I not given you enough evidence already? 
Jesus is far more angry at the storm than he is with them. Would you believe today that although Jesus might seem inactive with you currently in your storm, that Jesus is actually far more angry at the storm than you are? And Jesus can actually still do something about it even if he's not doing it in the time scale that you're wanting. Jesus is ferocious with the storm. And the incredible thing is that he is not piling on what we would do in terms of, Jesus could give them a litany of reasons why he did care. He could give them a litany of reasons why it was a silly question, but he does not do that. I'm so glad that Jesus in his patience and tenderness toward me gives me a million Bibles in my prayer, in my prayer life. Yeah, he gives me a million Bibles. There is a reason why Gentle and Lowly sold like hotcakes when it was released, wasn't there? Because when that book was released in 2020, the infamous year of all things COVID, we used to talk about um, BC and AD, but now we're before COVID and after COVID, isn't it? It's like a whole new time. It's like a, it's like a calendar change in our life now. And as Christians were walking through this season and we were all burnt out, stressed out, disillusioned, and then this book comes out that talks about the tender heart of Jesus toward his people when they sin and when they suffer. The reason why Christians gobbled this up is because we know deep down as we are journeying with Jesus, what does he really think of me? I haven't learned my lesson from last time. I've reacted this way once again. Is Jesus really, is he rolling his eyes at me? Is he, is he three strikes and you're out? But the problem is, well, I know he's gracious, so he might give me five strikes and I did fourth last night. Is he, really, is he really that gracious? Is he really that tender? And Jesus is tender with his disciples in this boat. He rebukes the storm. He does not rebuke them. Now, he does challenge them. But tone is everything. And the third thing I want us to consider is this. The most important questions in the storm are not the ones that we ask Jesus, but the ones he asks us. They ask him, don't you care that we are perishing? And he's able to answer the question. <laughs> but there's a question now he wants to ask them. <laughs> and that's, that question is far more important to our discipleship journey than any questions that we ask him. Someone has said that human beings are like tubes of toothpaste. And the only way to find out what's inside of us is that we need squeezed. And storms squeeze us. And when we are squeezed, what comes out? Or when we are squeezed, what is lacking? You, you know, every household is a couple who puts the toothpaste back after it's been emptied. You know, you know squeezing nothing there, nothing there. So when we're squeezed, what comes out? Or when we're squeezed, what, what is showing in lack? And Jesus here asks them a question. And you know what this means? It means that despite the potential satanic and demonic involvement of this storm, that God is sovereignly using this storm to teach these men something that they would not otherwise learn had it not been for the storm. This is the ironic thing. This is the mystery of providence. Book of Job refers to when there's this beautifully, a lot of it's poetic, but there's this beautifully poetic almost a song or poetry and musing about suffering. And it describes a man going deep down into the heart of the earth to find treasure. 
because there's something about the storms and difficulties. That dr- there's, there's certain treasures to be found that only happen when the difficulties come in. And we never, and this does not mean we become sadistic. We, um, we're called to rejoice in the trials, not at the trials. It's not like brilliant difficulty. We're not sadistic. It's not the way that we, we don't want to move into that direction where we're almost looking for the difficulty or pursuing the difficulty. We're to pursue Jesus. And in our pursuit of Jesus, then there are seasons in which these storms will take place. If you're in the boat with Jesus, um, you are in a boat that will enter storms and come out of storms, enter storms and come out of storms. That's, that's the fact. But as we're going to soon see, the fact that you've got Jesus in the boat makes all the difference. When you're squeezed, what comes out? Where's your functional savior? Where does your heart go? How does your mood take shape? But Jesus is about much more than revealing to us ourselves in the storm. Yes, he asks a question for our discipleship and growth, but we also see something else, and that is this, that Jesus is sufficient for the storm. What do I mean by this? Where do we see it in the text? We see it in a couple of ways. We've touched on it already. This is how Jesus is sufficient in a big sense. Because he is truly God, he is over the storm. But because he is truly man and touched with our infirmities, he's with us in the storm. So God is not over the storm and disconnected. He's not over the storm and disconnected. But neither is he just merely with us in the storm and, you know, a very simplistic understanding. When you're weeping, Jesus is weeping. Yeah, there's a sense in which Jesus in his human, he's touched by our infirmities, but he's more than just sitting beside. I don't need a Jesus that falls apart when I'm falling apart. I need a Jesus who's empathetic, but I need a Jesus who's also in control. And he's both. (laughs) He's both. He's over the storm and he's in the storm at the exact same time. And only Jesus can offer you this ministry. You can find a whole rake of spirituality and religion, and it will not offer you a gospel. It will not offer you good news. It will not offer you a God like this who is both over the storm and in the storm with his people. And there's a second way in which we see this. There's an interesting literary device because the text begins with a great storm, and then it moves to a great calm. And then it ends with great fear. The disciples end on great fear. But the, but the, the text ends with Jesus' disciples being more afraid of him than they were in the storm. There was something far more ferocious than a storm. And that person that was far more ferocious in the storm was the one who was asleep in the storm. He was with them all the time in that storm. And he was far more ferocious, far more powerful than any storm could be. And the text ends with this discussion among themselves. Who is this? And you've got this idea that, and I don't want to read too much because these are disciples on a progressive revelatory journey with Jesus before the cross and resurrection. So we are, I would submit that we probably, we do far more make sense to us this side of the cross and resurrection. But there's a principle in the text that goes like this. They know him, but they don't really. They know him, but they don't really. And what storms do is they not only reveal to us questions that need to be asked as we search our own hearts and see where we are with Jesus, but they also reveal to us more about Jesus in in the storm. Every Christian believes that Jesus is gracious and strong and wonderful. 
But sometimes it takes a storm to find out exactly just how Jesus is gracious and powerful and wonderful. There's something of the revelation of Jesus to these. Who is this? I have, they have seen something new of Jesus that they had not known before. And now the storm has brought them through and it begins a discussion among them. Now there's, I mentioned Psalm 107 and this is what we are ending on. Psalm 107 is a background psalm to this. God calms the storms. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus is Yahweh. But there's another famous Old Testament story that is a background to this. And it involves a sleeper in a storm. There's a boat going through a storm, and there's a sleeper in a storm, and he's rudely awakened and asked, will you do something about it? Can you do something about it? What about your God? That's, of course, Jonah. And there's some similarities, but there's one major difference, of course, because when Jonah is awakened from sleep, because Jonah's not God, he can't speak to the storm and get it to still. But this is what Jonah proposes. If I'm sacrificed, the storm will cease. If I'm thrown into the storm, that will cease. And in Mark 4, and there very much are allusions to the Jonah story, Jesus does not say, sacrifice me and the storm will cease. He doesn't do that. Well, not yet. Not yet. Because you see, the reason why we can take confidence in the storms of life is because Jesus has dealt with the only true storm that can affect us. And he willingly jumped into the ultimate storm, the ultimate storm of God's justice and hell's assault simultaneously coming upon him. And because Jesus willfully sacrificed himself to the most powerful of storms that none of us would have been able to carry ourselves, and he does that on our behalf and comes out the other end triumphant, what that means is, when we ask God in the storm, don't you care? He will say to you, look at the cross of my son and ask me again if I care or not. That I loved you so much that I was willing to send my son into the world and he was willing to come willfully submitted to my will in total perfection, a will that no one else could accomplish by any works or uh, attempts or striving. He completes a work that no one could complete in his life and he bears that substitutionary death in my place. That's, that's the type of gospel that we are dealing with today. So here's the thing, because of the gospel, Jesus comes into our boats and he says to us, you're going to the other side. Because of the gospel, Jesus will show far more anger at the enemy and the assaults that take place upon your soul than he will ever show anger towards you. He will be tender with you until the very end. Because of the gospel, Jesus will be so passionate about your growth. He will love you enough wherever you now and then he'll say, where's your faith? Come on. Walk with me further. Stay in the boat longer. You're going to make it. Because of the gospel, we can rest in the absolute sufficiency that Jesus is for us in the storm. Let us go across the other side. You're going to get across. The storms will come and go. But keep looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We've heard about an author today releasing a book. Jesus never starts the authorship of the story of your life without completing it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give up halfway as the manuscripts are getting difficult. He'll complete the story. He will complete the story, and you will make it. May God bless his word to our hearts today. Yeah, let me pray for us.
Yeah, Lord, just that sense of Jesus being the author and just that sense of the Father's heart taking delight in the story that you're writing in all of our lives. And you've begun a great work and you've promised to complete it. And just that sense, brothers and sisters, that you will, as it were, become a final published work of Jesus in the courts of heaven, that all of heaven will applaud and wonder at the redemption story that he wrote in your life. And Lord, we realize that the chapters in that book are often difficult, and we don't see what you're doing. We don't understand, but with maybe even weak faith. We don't even care about the strength of our faith today. We care about the object of our faith, and help us not to look at the storm but to look at Jesus, the captain of our salvation. So Lord, we come before you and we lay our lives before you. And for those that are in storms today, and Lord, I especially come today and in the authoritative name of Jesus, if there are demonic storms about in people's lives at the moment, in the authoritative name of Jesus, we take that authoritative name and we command that storm in the name of Jesus, the demonic afflictions to cease, to be released, to go. Lord, we can't always discern the nature of the storms, but what we do know is a good God, a powerful gospel, the power of the indwelling spirit, and the authority that we have over the enemy's lies. And we come against those storms and we say to cease in the name of Jesus and that God's people will be released in freedom and joy on the journey of faith with him. Come as we would respond. Glorify your name in Jesus' name. Amen.